Hi, how are you doing? It's late afternoon and I'm about to head out on my walk. After last week's weather, I was hoping for one of those really clear, bright autumn days. And instead, it's damp. But that's just another kind of characteristic autumn weather. We're going to go on a slightly longer walk than usual today because I wanted to visit some of the places that have become familiar during the course of this podcast, like the Fairy Wood and the Owl Barn and the Churchyard. Starting, though, at the Rabbit Warren and the Bottle Bank, because I've got something to drop in. My name's Melissa Harrison, and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Since April the 6th, I've been helping you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 27 of The Stubborn Light of Things. through the village and there's the smell of a bonfire on the air which feels quite nice and autumnal. The trees are changing colour too. There's lots of yellows and oranges around me. Lots of green too still but Hello is that Peter Rogers my producer? It is indeed. (laughs) Hello how are you? I am just walking up the road uh, and beginning to record the final episode. Oh, my days. Um, How is that feeling? I'm all right at the moment. I think I might feel a little bit emotional towards the end. It's been six months. It's been a weird six months and it's given a shape and a pattern to everything, I suppose, for the last little while. And it's made me feel useful, you know? Yeah, I uh, I feel the same, yeah. What's it been like for you? You know, I've been here wandering around Suffolk. You know, you grew up in Luton and you live in uh, outer London. And I've known you for a long time and you're not, not you know, you're not like anti-nature, but it's it's never been, it's been sort of my thing, really. Yeah. But you're, you seem to be noticing nature and connecting with it more and more. Is that? fair to say and is that why is that is that the podcast or is that lockdown or what you're right definitely um i have been taking much more of an interest in it um i think it's a few things i mean i don't know if this is true for everyone but i i do feel as though that interest and that passion is potentially within everybody and agreed yes by affilia right and for whatever reason, where you're born, um, you know, how your life turns out, it might never be a 
awakened, you might not get the opportunity to um, to kind of get into all this stuff, and it just sort of passes you by. It's kind of background. Yeah. And uh, but but I feel like once it's out the bottle, it it kind of doesn't go back in. Um, yes. And that has that has definitely that has definitely felt true for me um, because of the podcast, for sure. But also because of lockdown. I mean, I've been walking around um, my local area and finding little green spaces and, and little nature reserves that I never even knew were here. You've been um, perambulating, haven't you? Big time. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I like a walk as it is, but that has been one of the, the positive things along with the podcast, which has, has really um, helped me in a big way. You discovered a little park where they're thinking of reintroducing water voles, didn't you? little stretch of a river near you yeah literally 15 minutes walk from my house unbelievable and so that's something that you can carry forward with you yeah yeah excellent my work here is done (laughs) (laughs) right do you need to get on uh i do i've got um i've got a whole episode to record actually so yeah i should okay well um good luck and thanks uh one bit of advice uh yes uh turn your phone off (laughs) good point okay (laughs) i'll speak to you later bye bye right on we go to the recreation ground and the bottle bank and the tennis courts and beyond recreation ground looking out towards the rabbit warren I can't see any rabbits out yet I can see three crows sitting in a in the bare branches of a tree looking very heraldic and there are no swearing tennis players on the tennis court the other thing I can see at the very end of the recreation ground is a male pheasant bobbing and then running <laughs> along the ground. They can run quite fast. Pheasant shooting season has just started and they're not all going to make it. This one doesn't look like one of this year's youngsters which don't all have their full set of feathers and are all a bit um, looking a bit confused he looks like oh and there is a rabbit from the rabbit warren yep just running along the top of the bank and another actually okay there were rabbits I just couldn't see them the pheasant has um, has got them moving he's, he's uh, walked and run into the middle of the warren and two of the crows have left there's just one left now on the top of the tree distant sound of a robin Everything veiled in dampness. It's not, it's not raining, it's just there's a lot of moisture in the air. In exactly one month, my collected columns for The Times will be published by Faber as The Stubborn Light of Things. There'll also be an audio version 
which will include a short bonus episode of this podcast. Here's my Times Nature Notebook for October 2016. The clocks are about to go back. Next week, my evening commute will be darker. At 6pm, the Earth's revolution an hour further onwards than at 6pm today. The rush hour cars will have their lights on. In towns, the terraced rows will glow yellow or flicker with television light. More than at the equinox, it feels to me now that the year has truly turned and there is no longer any denying it. And all over the country, the trees know. In London's streets, parks and gardens, they are making themselves ready, the sap retreating and chlorophyll in the leaves breaking down to reveal orange and yellow pigments that have been hidden until now. An obsession layer forms at the leaf stalks, weakening and eventually severing their attachment to the twigs from which, in spring, they grew. Deciduous trees actively shed their leaves in order to weather the winter. Gales do not cause but merely hurry the process, blanketing gutters and back gardens with arboreal detritus, the untidy makings of future soil. On Hampstead Heath's western sandy quarter, the silver birch leaves are becoming butter yellow, though the oaks remain stubbornly emerald with the merest smattering of brown. Beneath them, As the fat acorns fall, grey squirrels are at their most impudent, keeping North London's dogs and dog walkers on their toes. South of the Thames, in Sydenham Hill, one of the last remaining fragments of the ancient Great North Wood is turning golden, with the exception of a few Victorian garden relics, like a monkey puzzle and a cedar of Lebanon, both of which will remain dark green year-round. The Nunhead to Crystal Palace railway line once passed through here, and at this time of year, bats come together to hibernate in a disused railway tunnel deep in the wood. All over the city, the ash trees are fading elegantly, like aquatints, while rowans on residential pavements proffer bright berries to blackbirds and thrushes, and poplars by the railway lines fling twigs like beckoning fingers down. Here and there, a maple flames crimson, while sturdy little hornbeams drop their colour where they stand, leaving a bare tree in a bright puddle, as long as there's no wind. On wet winter nights in Bloomsbury and Mayfair, the London plains under which walked Wolfe, Dickens and Orwell still keep watch over the city, their jigsaw bark washed to patchwork richness by the rain. turned off the lane and I'm walking up a farm track towards the fields and in the hedgerows on either side there are hips and haws, the last little black knots of blackberries and there are blue black sloes and here there's a young spindle tree And the fruits of a spindle are extraordinary. They don't look like they belong in this country. They're bright pink, fuchsia pink, with little lobes that split open to reveal a bright orange aril. 
which is um, not dissimilar to the fruit of a yew tree. They look tropical. Now at their best usually in late October, early November, so this is just the beginning of the spindles. Brief season of standing out the rest of the year. It's not much to look at. A horse has passed this way, I can see. Left its hoof prints and some dung on the track. One of the things I really love to do, I've, I've been in this village for a year now, as I've seen this lane um, in all the seasons, and I love that. I love building up a picture, knowing where there's a raptor's plucking post, um, because there's feathers on the ground underneath knowing which ditch runs freely and which floods, knowing why there's a bend in the path because a, a tree came down and we all walked around it and now the path has a bend, even after the tree has been taken away. Building up that kind of deep connection with a place, you can do it anywhere. I did it when I lived in London, when I used to walk scout on Tooting Common. It makes you feel rooted, not just to a place, but to the year. For me, it gives my life meaning. Feeling myself pass through the seasons, and the seasons pass through me. And understanding the difference between the change of that and the changelessness. I can see the village church from here across the fields, off to my right. And as I come up to this break in the hedgerow on the left, I can see the fairy wood across the fields. It's such a magical little copse. My producer, Peter Rogers, is a musician and a very old friend of mine. We met when we were both working at the dance music magazine, Mixmag. And the whole time I've been in Suffolk, He's been working on each episode from home, which is on the outskirts of London. And so I thought it might be nice to hear a bit from him in our final episode. It's a chilly but sunny morning, a little bit windy, and I'm sitting in my garden with a cup of tea. So around me I can hear... The normal sound of the city, really. I can hear traffic noise. I can hear magpies. Uh, I can also see a wood pigeon sitting on the end of the fence. It's been a good year for birds and animals in this garden, actually. Um, we've had blue tits and sparrows, a dunnock, uh, wrens, collared doves, and a fox has been sleeping quite languidly on the roof of the picture framers next door. But the bird I really want to talk about um, 
is my local blackbird, which frequented the garden. Reason being, it had a very particular and peculiar song, which I managed to record earlier. I've got no idea where it's got that from. Um, I understand that blackbirds often mimic sounds around them. Um, so maybe a car alarm or like a lorry reversing or something like that. But, but that call was um, the soundtrack to the lockdown of spring and summer for me. It, it's a very particular frequency, so it, it cuts through everything else. So I'd hear it when I was in the shower, um, when I was homeschooling the kids. Um, it would even bleed into my headphones when I was making this podcast. It was, was constant, and it actually became reassuring in a strange way. Outside of this podcast, I'm, I make music, and I've co-produced a number of drum and bass albums. And during interviews with people, you're often asked how the album came about, you know, what the story was behind it. And we came up with neat and tidy descriptions of how everything came together, you know, with a start, middle and end. And it's a natural thing our brains do, I think, filtering out a lot of the inconsequential stuff and trying to make a coherent narrative. Even though during that process things might be lost that were important or, or had more meaning than perhaps you first thought. And quite often the real story is just messy and doesn't really have any kind of arc to it. And I can feel that happening with my memories surrounding Covid too. When I look back at this period in like five or ten years time, I'll tell myself a story about it which will be a kind of summary. And it might be skewed in a way that protects me or reinforces my particular opinion of how things were handled or or who I've become, but it won't be accurate and I won't remember the details, the little things. Which is why the recording of that blackbird is, is so important to me. You know when you're walking down the street and you pass by someone that's wearing a particular perfume or, or aftershave and it immediately transports you somewhere um, that your brain couldn't normally get you to and it's really vivid. Well, that's what my Blackbird recording does. It's a link, a kind of time machine in a way. And it's a record of a very strange year. the fairy wood. There's an oak guarding the entrance. I wish it could be my climbing oak but it's not, it's not climbable. It would have lovely views though out over the, the fields around. Maybe I need a grappling hook, perhaps that's the answer. Right, in we go, ducking under some branches. Oh my gosh, did you hear that? <laughs> Just disturbed a covey of pheasants. 
young pheasants, still with their grey heads, deep in the wood. Hello. One, two, right next to me, being, being a bit idiotic. Young male and two females. Hello. Yeah, you need to get better at getting out of the way. There's a smell here in the wood, which I love. And it's the smell of autumn. It's the smell of wet, dead leaves that are beginning to decay. It's the smell of new soil being made. It's damp and rich and rotting. And I love it. Everything's wet. The air is holding a lot of moisture, but everything, everything's shining. Each, each leaf is shining. The moss is jewelled with, I suppose, with fog. With cloud. There are oak apples on the ground. And there are also... Um, the tough inners from maize, so think of corn of the cob once you've eaten all of the sweet corn. And there was a strip of maize planted until recently on the other side of the wood and animals have been bringing it in here and eating it. I know badgers eat it because you see, you see it in their scats. I imagine lots of things, I mean definitely squirrels and lots of other creatures will be feasting on that. Now we come to our final set of extracts from the journals of our 18th century Parson naturalist, the wonderful Gilbert White. If you want to keep following him through the year and through the years, you can get secondhand copies of his, his journals and his garden calendar at secondhand bookshops or online. The Natural History of Selborne is much easier to get hold of, but that's not the book that I've been quoting from here. And if you're into diaries of this kind, um, I can also recommend The Country Diaries, A Year in the British Countryside, which is edited by Alan Taylor. Um, and that features Gilbert White and Francis Kilbert. Um, the Wordsworths, Virginia Woolf, Richard Adams, who wrote Watership Down, Beatrix Potter, um, and lots of other people. Um, I fell in love with it years ago when it first came out. I wish I could, I wish I was a good diarist. I'm not at all. Month by month, if you read something like that, as, as Gilbert White's journals have been doing, it really builds a picture of the seasons and of the turning year. October the 5th, 1768. Rooks carry off nuts from the walnut trees. October the 5th, 1770. Crossbills among Mrs. Snook's Scotch pines. October the 5th, 1771. White frost, grey and clouds. Ashen leaves begin to fall. October the 5th, 1775. Here and there a straggling swallow. Curlews clamour. 
October the 5th, 1776. Black snails are more sluggish than in the summer, but in sight all day at this season of the year. Saw one hornet. October the 5th, 1781. No house martins nor swallows in the villages, nor sand martins at the pit on short heath. The white sand in the pit above, observed through a microscope, appears more sharp and angular than the yellow sand of the forest. Much gossamer flying. October the 5th, 1783. In the high wood, under the thick trees, and among the dead leaves where there was no grass, we found a large circle of fungi of the agaric kind, which included many beeches within its ring. Such circles are often seen on turf, but not usually in coverts. We found a species of agaric in the high wood of a very grotesque shape, with the laminae turned outward, and the cap within formed into a funnel containing a good quantity of water. October the 5th, 1787. Brother Ben and his wife came, put my fine hyacinths into a bed that was taken up in the summer, put also some good tulips and striped crocuses from Brother Thomas's garden into beds. October 5th, 1789. Gathered in Shawmantel pears, tied endives. October the 5th, 1790. Cut three bunches of grapes. They were just eatable. I can see the Albone with its overgrown bramble banks around it and its red brick wall facing me and holes in its old slate roof. In the little clearing near it, there's a stack of rectangular straw bales and an open area that grows long in summer. And there's an area here that's a cover crop too. It's all very helpful for the barn owls that live in the barn. I'm thinking about when I came here back in April and then recorded the episode in which I finally tracked down the barn owl. How much has happened since then? In the village there's been a death and a birth. There's been serious illness. That was a pheasant, several pheasants actually. There's the wood on my right that's carpeted with bluebells and yellow archangel and wild garlic in spring. And in six months, it will be so again. And I'll be here to see it. Shall I go in? I think I will. I've gone round the back. Starting some more pigeons. I can see old red tractor is in there. Brilliant. I'm going to duck under 
the doors. Just see if anyone's home. No way. Barnell just flew from, I don't know where it was perched, just flew straight past me and out of the, the window on the right. Gosh, they're so much bigger than you expect. Right, hang on. Where, where is it perched? Because it will just perch nearby waiting for me to go. I wonder if I can see it. Where are you? I know a couple of... Oh, there it is! It's, it's going away from me, down the track. Wonderful, look. White. Huge. It's going straight down the track where I'm going to walk next, and it's turned right. So it's still here, that's wonderful. Our final guest of this series is the writer and broadcaster Horatio Clare. Horatio is the author of two memoirs, an award-winning children's story, books about swallows and curlews, bach and shipping and lots of other things. His book, The Light in the Dark, A Winter Journal, is a beautiful account of the challenges and rewards of the natural world in winter. And I urge you to buy it and read it and take it with you into the months to come. So I've taken up night walking. My route goes straight up the buttress, a haunted hillside wood. It's a steep climb, very dark, and it brings you up to the sky on the edge of Heptonstall panting. I don't use my torch from now on. I often think night more alive and more richly coloured than day, wrote Van Gogh, with fewer tones, stronger scents, sounds which carry further, and the star-wide solitude. Night is unpredictable and exciting. You walk with memories and anticipations still, but framed in the peace of the dark, they seem more vivid, as you'll know if you've ever struggled to sleep. And this route along the edge of Hardcastle Crags to Widdop and over the shoulders of Walshaw Moor is rich with meanings. There's me, seven years ago, walking up the valley to see the house I've just bought. I'm thinking these tumbling paths, these riddles of stone and water and wood, will be wonderful for my little boy, a natural playground we will explore. And then there are other writers' meanings, which are mighty here. Ted Hughes grew up just over the hill, for a long while, the roosting hawks, the crows on posts, the fish in the streams were all his somehow. Sylvia Plath's buried here, her gravestone a battle of meanings. People used to deface the hues in Sylvia Plath hues, though they never damaged the inscription. Even amidst fierce flames, the golden lotus can be planted. It's a public site of private meanings. Sometimes the grave is planted with snowdrops or crocuses, sometimes with pens. Some meanings we draw from things, and some we bring to them. The patrolling gamekeepers mean Danny the champion of the world, to me, but also B.B., the great writer Dennis Watkins Pitchford, whose books set me on my path to writing. 
In Wild Lone, the story of a fox, he exclaims, how much man misses lying abed at night. With the changed world, the present we used to hurry through seems much less opaque and more insistent. I feel we are missing less somehow. Last year took me to Chile, Peru, the Maldives, Greenland and Italy. Imagine living and working like that, and it seemed normal. And this year I've mostly been here, and now I feel, if not from here, then of here, in a way I never did. These night walks have become an exchange of meanings with the place. And here's the strange thing. Studying the horizons this evening, planning another night walk, I saw a path I've never taken to the top of a moor, and a stone lookout up there, and I realised with a shiver that I had described it from my imagination in my first children's book, Aubrey and the Terrible Ute, which I set here when I was trying to convince myself that I, too, might create meaning here. It's a high peak in the book, from which the boy hero and his father are granted a vision of the world, from New York to Cape Town, all revealed one winter's night, all visible from this outcrop in Yorkshire. And so there is a third kind of meaning, one we both bring to and derive from a place, a meaning which exists on all the levels through which we approach and understand life. You know those moments, when things come together strangely, when a person or a thought or a place or a minute seems to glow unworldly bright, and you're a child again, amazed by life's intensity? Well, I think it must be that I look for when I travel and write, and it turns out it was just here all along, close by outside, in the dark. I'm heading back into the village as the light begins to fade. I can hear rooks in the distance starting to go to bed. Here and there, there are the last pink flowers of mallow on the roadsides. We were born in the cycle of days and seasons. We know sun up and sundown in our bones. We know the equinoxes. We were born into the smells of autumn and spring. Our brains and our biochemistry and our biomes and all of us runs on this ancient information. And removing ourselves from it has a cost. If you've enjoyed this podcast and it's meant something to you and you feel you'll miss it, I want to suggest something to you. It's not the podcast that you need. It's not me that you need. It's the natural world. If you've been able to find half an hour 
once a week to listen. Take that half hour. Go outside. Do it more if you can. Keep doing it. Build a connection. You know how to do it already. You've been doing it with me. You have everything you need. You don't need a podcast to mediate your relationship with nature for you. You can build it yourself and it will enrich every day of your life. And there's so much still to come this year. There's the Red Wings overhead at night calling. There's long skeins of straggling geese Flocks of finches moving from place to place. There's rutting deer to come. Including in royal parks. Not just the depths of the countryside. There's the moment in midwinter when you'll suddenly hear a thrush singing. There are starling murmurations to seek out. And then the first snowdrop of spring. And then everything else that's to come. That's what you need. Go out and find it. You're ready. And more than that, it's ready for you. I'm in the churchyard, the place where this podcast began. And I can hear rooks squabbling and pheasants going to bed. I'm surrounded by the village dead. And beyond them, I can see some of the village houses. One has smoke coming out of the chimney. And beyond them, the fields. The sun is low in the west. I can't actually see the sun itself, only its glow. It rained a little while ago and I'm a bit damp. I've been thinking a lot about the meaning of this pandemic. Where does it fit into our story? Is it the central crisis after which everything is different? Is it the final scene? Or is it the inciting incident at the beginning that kicks off 
the main part of the action. We're lost inside it. We're in the middle of it. We don't have enough perspective. We want to know what it means, but we can't find out. To give something meaning, there needs to be a meaning maker. And once that would have been God for nearly everyone. And it still is for a lot of people. But many of us think about our future selves, future generations, when we try and imagine who will make sense of today. In fact, sometimes I imagine aliens. <laughs> and sometimes I imagine that our world is one of many in lots of Petri dishes with scientists peering through microscopes and looking at us and going, oh, this one's invented capitalism. And whether they've given us <laughs> the virus as a cure or a kill, I don't know. It's quite tempting to give the job of meaning-making to someone else. It takes the responsibility away for one thing, and it's familiar from childhood, you know, when parents made meaning. They were the ones that knew what the shape of the day was and what was going to happen and whether something that had happened was, was bad or frightening or not. It's tiring and it's scary to have to make our own meanings ourselves all the time. In my own childhood, I was, and still am, the youngest of six in a family that really obviously couldn't afford five. And I was also an accident. Um, all of the others are very close in age. They're all 18 months or so apart. And then there's a five-year gap and then there's me. And that left me with a sense of guilt. Not actually, wasn't that conscious of it in childhood, but it was there. It was just part of the water I swam in. I've identified it since. The feeling that I'd arrived and was taking up precious resources. So I felt like I needed to justify my life. I needed to do well and earn my place, I suppose. And that's stayed with me. I still feel as though I need to... My life needs to mean something. It's not enough to just have a nice time. And that feeling was really strong at the beginning of lockdown. I looked around and realised how lucky I was to be here in Suffolk and have all of these woods and fields to walk straight into when other people we're going to have a really, really shit time. Because I believe that the natural world is really important to our mental health and our physical health and to, our, to everything about us and that we are important to it. That connection to me is, is crucial. So this podcast wasn't an entirely altruistic thing it helped me to feel useful 
it's another way for me to do the work that I think I'm here for, which is helping people connect to the natural world. I've just finished a book by John Berger um, called A Fortunate Man, The Story of a Country Doctor. And it's uh, set in the late 1960s. And it's a deceptively simple book. It's got enormous hidden depths. This doctor that Berger describes, his life is filled with unimaginable challenges. This is the last era in which a doctor would perform surgery and be the emergency services when anything went wrong and would be an obstetrician and, you know, everything. And a, and a, a a therapist as well to his patients. He was everything to them. And he suffered, the doctor suffered periods of deep, intense depression. But even so, Berger calls him a fortunate man. And the reason for that is, he says, like an artist, he believes that his work justifies his life. And you could also call that a vocation. That book's made me think of another book that I read um, about a year or so ago called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He was an Austrian psychotherapist. He was the founder of a branch of psychotherapy called Logotherapy, which is healing through meaning. Frankl spent three years in concentration camps during the war, including Auschwitz. And he believed that the purpose of therapy, and in fact, the, the purpose of growth, what growth was, was not happiness or even relief from pain or discomfort. It was the identification and the pursuit of meaning in life. He said that no one else could tell you the meaning of your life. You had to find it out yourself. And also, he said, by the way, this is important. It, it might not be anything to do with your job or your work or anything necessarily that you do. It might be found in relationships, in experiences, or in the attitude that you took to the things that happened to you. When he was in Auschwitz, more than once, he dissuaded other prisoners from suicide and they would tell him I have nothing more to expect from life and he would reply but life expects something from you we're nearly at the end of this now the final podcast <laughs> and Pete and I would like to thank all of the guests who gave us their time and their energy to create recordings describing the world where they were. And to the poets who read us their work so heart-stoppingly. And to the actors and broadcasters who I roped in, <laughs> called in lots of favours to lend us their voices. Thank you all so much. And thank you also to Alison Brackenbury. Her beautiful poem, Brockhampton, 
gave us the title for this podcast and for my book. And her selected poems, Gallop, is out now. I'm feeling quite emotional, actually. (laughs) This week's poem is by the Polish poet, novelist, translator and essayist Adam Zagajewski. It's read by Richard Keese, whose voice you'll recognise from episode three, way back in April. Since then, Rich has voiced a series of nature documentaries, which is a lovely thing. Try to praise the mutilated world is from Without End, New and Selected Poems, published by Farah, Strauss and Giroux. Goodbye for now. And be kind to yourself, okay? Try to praise the mutilated world. Remember June's long days and wild strawberries, drops of rosé wine, the nettles that methodically overgrow the abandoned homesteads of exiles. You must praise the mutilated world. You watch the stylish yachts and ships. One of them had a long trip ahead of it, while salty oblivion awaited others. You've seen the refugees going nowhere. You've heard the executioners sing joyfully. You should praise the mutilated world. Remember the moments when we were together, in a white room and the curtain fluttered. Return in thought to the concert when music flared. You gathered acorns in the park in autumn and leaves eddied over the earth's scars. Praise the mutilated world and the grey feather a thrush lost and the gentle light that strays and vanishes and returns. (laughs) 